0: Jackson last year and uh, walked him through, explained to him what we're doing, helped, uh, had him help us write the note uh, to whatever child would receive it and just wrote the good news of what Jesus did and why that's good news for that child. And so um, it's very simply, you take a box, likely a shoebox, Pack it with things, for boy or girl, and uh, you bring it back. The drop-off will be out in the lobby over the next six or seven weeks, um, and take time to actually walk your family through why this matters. Pray over uh, the child that would receive it, and pray that the gospel would advance, Um, and then we'll get to celebrate uh, at the end on November 20th what God will do, and pray together for that. So, uh, just a great opportunity. So, uh, keep that in mind as as we can be consumed around the times of holiday seasons with uh, intaking and gratifying ourselves, we know that, that God calls us to to be uh, outward bending citizens of a kingdom that tell people of a better place and a better kingdom that's longer lasting than here. Uh, and so we want to do that rightly. So um, let's, let's ask God to speak. We're in Luke 16. Let's ask Him to uh, be kind to us and give us eyes and ears to hear. Uh, I say all the time, listen, if, if you're attending this or you're new to Christianity or new to church, you're not just going to stare at your Bible and then somehow just magically leave changed or encouraged. We, we need to ask what's called the Holy Spirit of God, the, the third member of the Trinitarian God that we worship. We need to ask Him to give us eyes to see and ears to hear, uh, that we would actually understand and discern the truth that He gives us. So let's, let's ask Him, God. Thank you that you're a God that um, is perfect in all that you do and all that you say. Father, help us to trust that this morning. God, help the text to read us much more than we read it. And Father, would you be kind and gracious in maybe rescuing some, bringing them from death to life this morning, and those that are yours, would you continue to hold them fast in your grip by the power of the person and work of your son as you fuel us through the person of the Holy Spirit. Father, help us to be good stewards Help us to be faithful with what you've entrusted to us. Thank you that it's all yours, that you're the treasurer with all the treasure, and we are but managers to steward in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Luke chapter 16. Uh, if you have your Bible, go to Luke chapter 16. If you don't have a Bible, there's Bibles in the back. I always say, please grab one. It's our gift to you. Keep it. Here's what's uh, happening in the Gospel of Luke. What we, what we do here at Church of Bergen is we just plow through books of the Bible because we want ourselves to see all that God intended to write in His beautiful Word. And so, um, we believe that you walk through verse by verse, line by line, to see the full counsel of what God might say in a book of the Bible. So, we're in the Gospel according to Luke. Luke was a physician. He was a guy likely writing to this guy, Theophilus who he says at the beginning of his letter, who's skeptical of the things of Christianity and of God, and so uh, he's writing to say, hey, these life and teachings of Jesus, this guy's not just a historical figure who you can learn some cute, like, teachings from to boost your self-esteem. This is a guy who was God who lived, died, rose, and empowers people who are called his church. So, looking at the life and teachings of Jesus is not so that you just well up in your brain with knowledge, it's so that your theology, your knowledge of God creates a good biography, an office of living, which creates good Doxology, which is, which is worship to God because of what you know and how you're living. And so we've been looking at the life of Jesus, and he's brilliant, he's clever, he's, he's winsome, he's beautiful, he's everything perfect because he's God in human flesh. And so um, he often will roll out these stories called parables to help us understand a theological concept. And so he's been, he's been doing that where we find ourselves this morning. Luke 16 is um, another parable he's going to roll out. It comes off the prodigal son which we uh, saw last week, which we uh, saw was directed towards the Pharisees and scribes, the religious leaders. And here he's going to turn his gaze back to those who are his, those who are genuinely interested in growing, following, and loving Jesus. Okay, so uh, if that's you, that's especially for you, and if that's not you, he wants you to listen in, just like the Pharisees and scribes are listening in, who do not yet understand the saving work of Jesus. So, um, as we get into this, we're gonna see a theme of Jesus that just continues through Luke, where um, he, he doesn't simply just go after your behavior. So, so, I don't know what you learned growing up in church, but, but the God of the Bible, the God that made everything that you see, the air that you breathe, he's not just simply going after you, being good, not being bad. Okay, we see a God in the Scriptures who goes after ruthlessly and aggressively your heart. Because he knows that that just right behavior outside of a transformed heart doesn't lead to joy and doesn't lead to fullness of life. So, if you're in here and you're like, man, I thought the mantra of Christianity was just do good things and do less bad things and hope maybe one day in the gates of heaven I enter in, you're missing it. Our God is after joy. He's after worship. He's after all of you because he knows when you're bound up in the fullness that is him, you'll find the greatest joy in life. So, Christians are not prudes. We are aggressively after pleasure, right? We want pleasure more than the world. We want the deepest possible pleasure, which is only found and bound up in the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's what we chase. That's what we want. That's what we strive for. That's what we want to see, okay? And that's why we sing songs and read the word and do all that we do to see more of him and get more of him, knowing that it will lead to lasting joy. You with me? Okay, so, so here we are in a story about money. Now, you know, right out of the gate, you're going, oh, here we go, right? Service about money. Well, well, Jesus talked a lot about money. He talked about it continually. He talked about it winsomely. He talked about it specifically. It's not because the God of the Bible needs your money. <laughs> he's infinitely wealthy. He's not going, oh, man, could you throw a few more dollars in the plate for me? You know what he's after? He's after your heart, right? That's why he says, hey, where your treasure is, that's where your heart will be. So you got the two most common probably idols in Bergen County, sex and money. So he's going to address one that's helpful for us that he keeps coming back to, which is wealth. The idea of, of all that you have is by God for God. Um, And he's going to roll out this parable to give an illustration. It's actually a very bizarre story. Seems very odd, uh, the way that he kind of gives it. But he's really giving us a practical illustration as to how we should view all that we have and live as effects of his people. So uh, he's been pretty much doing this since uh, chapter 15. Let's look at verse 1. Here's what he says. And he says to the disciples... Okay, that, that's important. You got to know who Jesus is talking to. So he turns his, his eyes away from responding to the Pharisees, right, and then the prodigal son who were just mocking him for sitting with tax collectors and sinners. Here he goes talking to the disciples, okay, those of us who claim to know him, love him, want to follow him. He says, hey, there was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called them and said to him, what is this I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be my manager, so, he says to the disciples, right, those who want to love him, follow him. He says to the disciples this parable, but if you go down to verse 14, if you skip ahead, you'll see the Pharisees are sitting there, eavesdropping, scoffing, okay? This is common for the self-righteous religious elite that are listening in on Jesus. They're always there peeping in the window. They're the peeping Tom. That's very odd, very—makes you feel insecure. You're not quite sure what they're doing or what they want, but they're just antagonistic. They're, they're hypocritical. They have a critical spirit, so they're always looking in. So, Jesus talks to them knowing the Pharisees are lovers of money. So, it is for for the disciples, but it's definitely for those who are eavesdropping, right? This is is always purposeful in what Jesus says, and he's expecting this. And it's a very straightforward story. It's not secret. It's not hidden. It's not allegorical. It's very plain, right, this beginning part. And here, there's a rich man who's very wealthy. Now you'll see he's very wealthy down the road because he has a lot of debtors that owe him a lot on large scales. So we know this man was wealthy. He owned a lot. He had a lot and he hires this manager to be in charge of collecting all his debts. And so what the manager's job was is to say, hey, go to these debtors and say, hey, you owe my master this, you owe my master this. Now, now this manager was basically entrusted full authority of the rich man. So, so he managed his assets, he managed his land, he managed his property, he did all of that. And as he does all of this, it's reported that the rich man has a manager that's wasting his possessions. Now this isn't like embezzlement necessarily, this is like just mismanagement. Okay, this is just a guy not wisely stewarding what he should be stewarding. And the rich man, I love this, acts right away and goes, okay, hey, bro, we've got some serious issues. Like, I've got some people launching some accusations at you saying, you're, you're not rightly managing my funds, okay? And, and that's not what I've asked you to do. And so, uh, here's the deal. You got, you got two weeks to close out your office, but I need you to go back and make an account of all the assets that are outstanding. I need you to go do your homework. I need you to go do some work here. I'm not telling you to save your job, I'm telling you to give me an account, right? And in, in Berge Calley language, that's uh, you're fired, but you got two weeks to clean out your desk, right? That's what he's saying to him. So you already know the door's open, you already know you're headed out, but hey, you gotta help me reckon some of these things before you leave. Right, you can't get off scot-free. In verse 3, here's what happens is the manager receives this news. Now, some of you guys, you know what this is like when, when there's been unease and hearing about a job loss or things are happening like that nature. You know the stress you're under. You know the, the thoughts that you have. And here's classic worldly perception. Verse 3, he says, manager says to himself, what should I do? My master is taking the management away from me. He's going, I'm losing my job. What am I going to do? How am I going to, you know, find a place to live? He, he took away my security of my future. So so i got to find a place to go, i got to find a place to be, i got to be around important people, I don't want to be a a, a blue collar, I want to be white collar. You'll see this in a a second. So he says to himself, I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. I've decided what to do, so that when I'm removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. So he summoned the master's debtors, one by one. He said to the first one, how much do you owe my master? He said, a hundred measures of oil. He said to him, take your bill and sit down quickly and write fifty. Then he said to another, how much do you owe? And he said, a hundred measures of wheat. And he said to him, quick, take your bill and write 80. So the manager says to himself, oh boy, Houston, we have a problem, right? Like, what am I going to do to secure my temporal future, right? He doesn't realize, he's not thinking temporal, but but worldly people can only know this side of heaven, right? So he's going, man, what do I do to secure this? Where do I live? What job am I going to get? He's trying to think cleverly. And so as he's doing this, amazing, his boss just ruined his future. He's a proud white-collar man. So, man, I ain't picking up a shovel, right? No no manual labor. That ain't me, right? I want to be around important people with important things, with important resources. He's proud. He's selfish. So he thinks, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to contact everybody one by one who owes my master, and I'm going to indebt them to myself by incurring them and giving them discounts on their own debts, So what goes around comes around, right? It's cunning. So he's putting himself in a position of offense with these debtors so that later he can come to them and go, hey, remember the favor I I did for you? Yeah, yeah, you got to be an honorable man, right? You want to be dishonorable, so you better give me this job or let me work here because if you don't, I'm going to tell everybody the the favor I did for you and you're going to look bad. It's very self-centered, very self-motivating, but it's pretty cunning. It's pretty clever. So he wants to discount people so they're obligated to do something good for him. So he calls the first guy, hey, Bob, meet me at Starbucks. We gotta meet, we gotta go over your debt that you owe my master. They sit down, hey, I don't care what you want, latte, hot coffee, just finish with that. We gotta get down to business. Uh, How much do you owe my master? He goes, man, 100 measures of oil. Okay, that's like three years wages. Dude, how about I give you a 50% discount, cut it in half. Quick, sign on the dotted line, deal doesn't last all day, right? Guy signs on the dotted line because what person doesn't want that deal? Then he, then he calls up the next guy, Jim, hey, let's meet at the local diner. Hey, quick, 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 we got to meet. I got to go over your debt. How much do you owe? And he says, 100 measures of wheat. And so, he's oh, going, man, well, that's like eight to 10 years of labor. That's, that's a lot. I'll give you 20% off. Quick, sign on the dotted line deal doesn't last all day. Let's go. Sign and pen. Now, discounts aren't uncommon in ancient Near Eastern culture. In case you're wondering, like when there, when a famine came in the land or an economic economic downturn, people all work together to figure these things out. But there's nothing here of that nature that should cause him to do this, right? There's no there's no external economic, you know, uh, uh, you know, environmental issue that's causing them to all kind of work together. This is. The man very simply saying, I'm going to put myself in a strategic, targeted place of position to win favor of people at the expense of my boss, so I can go back to all of them and say, remember what I did for you? You owe me. You owe me big time. Uh, Some of you guys know these types of people? Like, they always do something seemingly nice for you, but it's because they want something. They come back later. Hey, remember what I, oh, I thought you were just being nice. Well, I mean, I was. I was being nice. Oh, okay, good. So we're good? Well, yeah, but I thought maybe you could, right? There's some insincerity there, and so Jesus inserts a shocking element to the story, right? We can all agree at this point what the manager did wasn't totally right. Right, even if he wasn't like intentionally trying to steal, honest, dishonest, we can all agree that he misappropriated, he mismanaged, whether it was intentional or unintentionally, he knew his job was going out the window, and so he sits down purposely to deceive so that he can make something for himself, which is why it seems crazy what Jesus says in this story. Verse 8. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. <laughs> wait a second. Right? If you're a boss of anything, you're going, wait a second, man. No, I'm kicking him out the door sooner. You're going to give discounts to the people that owe me the fullestness, the fullness of my debt? You're going to get, what are, you, what are you doing? This isn't your business. This is my business. And yet this, this manager approves of, he actually commends the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. And Jesus says, for the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. This seems a bit bizarre. So, so the master catches wind of it and goes, Brilliant. Okay, this isn't, hey, great job. Hey, everybody go and do likewise. That's not what he's saying. He's not commending him for his prodigalness. Right, we learned prodigal was to be wasteful. He's not, he's not applauding him for being wasteful. He's applauding him on being clever. He's applauding him on taking a situation where he knew he'd probably be homeless and do everything he could to find you know, a home and an income for his family. It was clever, it was cunning. That's what he is commending him on here. By reducing the debts, he indebted everybody to himself. That's pretty smart. Some, some, of you guys, some of you guys know what this is like with, with people who, who uh, man, they just outwit you or they, they, they do something to you or it's just clever. It's super shady, but it's amazing, right? Right? You're like, man, that was shady, but that was really good. I mean, that was, that was clever. That was kind of sick though. What? You know what I mean? You're just kind of like wondering that that's what's going on here. He's going, yeah, this was shrewd. This was cunning. I applaud you on that. That's actually a brilliant way to spend your last two weeks because you're making the most of your opportunity the best that you are able. But Jesus gives us a lesson, right? Because the question is always, okay Jesus, what's the lesson of the parable? What's the theological concept? What's the, and in verse nine he kind of gives it to us. He says, basically the manager saw the future, and with that in mind he began to prepare, plan, and live for the day of reckoning. Now, brothers and sisters, Of course he did. Like, if you are not attached to the kingdom of God through the personal work of Jesus, your God is all that you see here. I mean, why would he not exhaust himself to try and secure a future that's still temporary if he is a son of this age, right? He's talking about unbelievers. Sons of light are those who are believers. Okay, why would he not do that? Because, I mean, just look at the world, right? The mantra is, whether through investments, through scheming, through scamming, whether honest or dishonest, how can I build up my future? Watch. You're going to walk into work tomorrow, you're going to see the shrewdness, the first step in your office. I mean, this is the world system, right? How can I make as much as I can and make much of me, whether it's honest or a little dishonest, I'm gonna do whatever it takes at whatever cost to build up for me security, to build up for me some liability. I mean, I mean outside New York City, those of you guys that commute into the city and work out, you guys know this. You guys know what it's like. You know the way people think. So th- there's nothing uncommon about this. For the non-Christian, this is their God. Everything here is their God because there's nothing beyond it. There's nothing outside of it. So let's chase it till we die. Let's try to find fullness of life in it till we die. And let's try to just have endless accumulation of wealth till we die. Buying the lie that somehow the merry-go-round you're on that never leads to everlasting fullness of life that dissipates in a short moment might at some point So you do what's called insanity. You keep trying what hasn't worked, thinking it might work. And that's the world system. And so here, you see the shrewdness. And Jesus is saying, my kids don't live this way. And Those who are mine don't even live this way. He's looking in town going, man, investing, preparing for the future day of reckoning where they're going to stand before me and give an account of the way they've stewarded all that I've entrusted to them, right? The manager was a steward of the, of the rich man's just wealth and, and inheritance and all that it was. And instead, he's going, me, 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 me. And here you see in this, they could be using their unrighteous wealth, just wealth from an unrighteous system. He's just talking about all the cash we get from this world, right? It's just, it's unrighteous in the sense of it's part of the world's system. Him. He goes, man, why are you not using that? Why are you not being as shrewd as this guy investing for the day of reckoning you know you have coming? That's eternal, it's not temporal. Well, like, how are you not investing in gospel work and kingdom enterprises and, and looking at your life through the lens of stewardship of eternity and not temporal? If an unbelieving person of this world can be shrewd and outwit people and clever and just tenacious over how they save, spend, and steward, why can't you, when the stakes for you are so much higher? That, that's what Jesus is saying. He's going, how, how, how does the world operate better than my own kids? That's a, that's a hard word from Jesus. And notice, notice. Man, when you read Jesus, you have to read him. Not just skim over stories, right? He says, he doesn't say, if it fails. His is say, and if your wealth fails. He said, when, right? When your wealth fails. Every day you turn on the news, right? Oh, freaking out. Unemployment's up, economy's down debt is up, discouragement's down. I can't believe it. Freaking out. Jesus says, don't freak out when it fails. Not if it fails. Look at the way uh, Solomon puts it. Interesting. I didn't talk to David about Ecclesiastes at all, so that was awesome that he shared that, but Ecclesiastes chapter two, I just want you to see this. It's, Solomon, right? He's the Bill Gates of the Old Testament. He's one of the wealthiest people that ever lived. And he tries everything. He runs the rabbit race. He exhausts himself for the things of here. Here's what he says in Ecclesiastes chapter 2. I'm just going to read through the chapter. I said in my heart, Come now, I will test you with pleasure, enjoy yourself. But behold, this is also vanity. I said of laughter, is it mad? And of pleasure, what use is it? I searched my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses, planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools, right? We got pools, right, Bergen County, right, from which the water and the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had such had, as Bergen County maids. I had servants, right, who came in. I had landscapers. They were born in my house. I had great possessions in my house. I had great possessions of herds and flocks, animals. Now, you guys have dogs. Some of you guys, it's like a herd, right? You've got tons of dogs and cats. You need to get rid of them. And here he says, I gather for myself, right, silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I've got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the children of man. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me. All my wisdom remained with me, and whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I mean, are are you not resonating with this, especially when you're in the fight of the Christian life? Whatever my eyes see, whatever pleasures lay before me, I I can't stop looking at them. I can't stop desiring them. Now, those of us who know Jesus and are attached to the better vine, the better tree, the better treasure, he keeps us firm and protects us from being caught in folly and chasing the mythical creature of pleasure of this world, right? But to the unbelieving person, you chase it because it's all you know because this is your God. And here he says, I kept my heart from no pleasure. Some of you, that's true. Your heart's kept from no pleasure, and you don't care about the destruction of your marriage, your family. Yourself, your soul. Pleasure's the mantra. Whatever makes me feel, whatever alleviates pain. For my heart found pleasure in all my toil. That's true, you find pleasure in it for a moment. Then you're left worse than before. And this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done, and the toil I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity and a striving after the wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. Solomon basically says in this text, I drank pleasure until there wasn't anything else to drink and it brought me no joy. Man, I bought houses until there were no houses more to buy and it left me empty. I tried every type of woman. I went around, and I had all these concubines until there weren't any women left for me to try, and it left me empty. He says, I basically maxed out on pursuing pleasure, and it left me empty, lonely, discouraged, and dry. Like, I I chased it. Now he he can say this man he he's got it all he chased everything the world would lay before you culture would lay before you as successful achievement fame prestige here's what gives you identity here's what gives you security here's what gives you comfort man just chase it and he says I did chase it you know what I found at the end of the day after I chased it and kept chasing it and kept chasing it and I maxed out on all of those things that I didn't have anything else I hit the ceiling. See, for the unbelieving person, there's a ceiling that you can't get past. See, so your pleasure's limited, your joy is limited. For the Christian, the ceiling opens up. And we pass through a ceiling into greater glories and greater security and greater identity and greater pleasure bound up in the God who made you and wired you and fashioned you to be a person who worships. So when you worship what you're supposed to worship, all of a sudden you as a human being is operating rightly and not wrongly. So there's a switch that gets flipped to where joy, pleasure, desires get changed altered. That's called conversion. That's called you trusting in Jesus to take your sin and become your sin for you so he becomes your righteousness for you. Him killing wrath, killing debt, all that you owed, and putting it on himself so you could be made new to walk in newness of life. So now you see the world through a totally different vein. And you go, wow, I thought that what brought me fullness of life even though you knew that it would not bring you fullness of life. And so what he's saying is what Jesus is saying. Endless personal accumulation is meaningless. In whatever regard, you can insert whatever thing you want in there. Where you're gonna live, cars you're gonna drive, neighborhood, income, endless accumulation will leave you bone dry. Some of you have tasted that already, I've met with you, we've sat down, we've cried, we've prayed, and God redeems it. God redeems folly, God redeems sin, and he realigns you and recalibrates you to the endless, matchless treasure, which is himself. That's why we're, we're Christians, we enjoy God. We enjoy him more than other things. That's why the first commandment is don't have any other gods before me, because if you get that wrong, you're going to get all the rest wrong. You're going to covet. When God is not God, you will commit all the other ones. You will have anger, you'll have bitterness, you'll have hatred, you'll have rage, you'll have discontentment. So Jesus is saying, knowing that wealth will fail you, knowing that that's true. First, do you believe that, right? If you know that wealth will fail you, don't worship it, steward it. That's what he's saying here. So the question becomes for us, brothers and sisters how can we take the unrighteous wealth that God graciously gives and steward it to purchase friends that will welcome you into heaven? Isn't that amazing? That by you stewarding your money into gospel enterprises, into things that preach and herald and proclaim the good news of Jesus, the people who are recipients and get saved through the investment there will welcome you into heaven. Samaritan's purse. It's incredible. It's an incredible text to read. And I love that Jesus flips our worldview here. You, you can't send up your house. You can't invest your house in heaven, can you? You're going to have a better one, by the way. Um, you can't invest your car in heaven, can you? You're going to fly everywhere. You're not going to need a car. You're not. You might have one, but you're not going to need it. Right? You, you're not going to need all the good food and wine and drink because it's going to be better. It's going to be unpolluted, undefiled, unfading. We're gonna eat, we're gonna have conversation, we're gonna enjoy God. But the only thing that you can send up is investments for eternity that are gospel-shaped and gospel-fueled. That's what Jesus is showing us. He's showing us that whatever little treasures we have here um, when you pass, you ain't taking it with you. My dad used to always tell me as a, as a kid, I used to always really want something, and I guess it was his way of like loving me well, but it was a little bit creepy and weird, but we, we would go through places like a toy store and be like, Dad, I really want this. He's like, ah, it's all going to burn. I was like, what? He'd be like, it's all going to burn. Yeah, you don't, you don't need that. But he, he was right, right? I mean... I mean, outside of I mean, it's just it's just all gonna burn. I mean, I mean, outside of what we invest for the future for the king, right? Those things remain for eternal. So all the trinkets and toys that we love, listen. When you pass from this world, somebody else just gets to figure out what to do with it for another temporary time, and then rinse and repeat, right? When you pass away, your I don't know. You give it to somebody else. You give it to somebody else. Then it gets passed down until the car eventually burns out, dilapidates, whatever. Until the house crumbles. Until there's something wrong with it. I mean. Everything's on a short-lived fuse outside of investing for kingdom-minded things. And so this is why our wealth invested in the proclamation of the person and work of Jesus Christ is so important. Okay, this is one of the reasons why we give as God's people to Church at Bergen because we want this good news to be proclaimed. We want people to gather to hear the good news and the saving work of Jesus, which we pray you're hearing today. Um, this is why, as a church, we love to give to things that proclaim this good news, use the local church as the vehicle that God has chosen to advance the nation. So, Acts 29, the network we're in, which plants churches in unreached regions and other places, we give to that. That's why we give to international care ministries in the Philippines, who help the poorest of the poor to find and be connected to the local church, right, through kindergartens that teach them the message of Jesus. That's why we also give to Restoration Church in Philadelphia, because we believe that they are preaching and heralding the gospel in a very dark, deep, difficult area. That's why we give to Pastor Wilson in Haiti, because he- He is all about planting churches, training pastors to be people that teach and preach the good news of Jesus. We want to be people that invest in kingdom-minded things, in gospel-minded things. Now, the next aspect might sting a little bit because Jesus knows that some of us are saying at this point, well, I mean, I don't really give because I don't really have that much. Now, this is usually the young married or the college student. Well, well, seriously, right? Stop. I mean, not to make men a joke, but, but you're like, well, I mean, when I get out of college, then I'll start stewarding. Then I'll start investing. You know, once, once our family, our family kind of gets rooted and settled, and uh, I don't know, maybe like we stop having kids, or then somehow magically my income's going to grow, and then, then I'm going to start giving and stewarding what God has given us. Um, I'm, I'm sure many, I don't know, but I'm sure many, if you're honest, you don't give it all. You don't steward at all. It's probably not even a thought. Or if it is a thought, it never gets any traction at all. And, and here's the thing. Uh, some of you guys are going, well, you don't know me. You're right, I don't. But thank God Jesus does. Look at what he says in verse 10. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. And the one who's dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? I cannot say this enough. It has nothing to do with how much you have. It has to do with who you are. It has to do with faithfulness has to do with your heart. Jesus says where your treasure is, there your heart will be. Your treasure's either in heaven. It's either heaven-minded or it's here and now-minded. And so here, Jesus shows faithful people, they're faithful people whether they have little or they have much. Uh, unfaithful people, they're unfaithful whether they have a little bit or much. So, so if you think magically, if you're buying the lie that, man, if I can just toil and strive in like 10 years from now, then I'll start being faithful and stewarding joyfully and generously, you're, you're, just, you're just lying to yourself. You're not going to get to enjoy the gifts of God and being people that steward all that is his. And so here he shows us, if you're faithful in little, you'll be faithful in much. If you're not faithful in what you have now, you won't be faithful if you're given more. Some of you guys, I hear this literally. uh, The lottery's gonna change it. No, the lottery's gonna ruin you. The lottery can't change your heart. God changes your heart. So the heart stays the same, but circumstances change. But if your heart's not fixed, you don't deal with the disease, you only deal with symptoms, nothing will ever happen in your life. That's why we love that the goodness of Jesus deals with disease and not symptoms. And so, here Jesus is showing us that where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. It's about where your heart is, it has nothing to do with the amount you possess. And don't miss verse 12, if you have not been faithful in the use of that which is another's, who will you give, who will give you that which is your own? Wow, okay. This theological understanding has transformed me and then transformed my marriage. When I, it, it changed from, okay, well how much am I gonna like, now this is, this is stewardship, but not just wealth, any type of wealth. It, it's money, it's relationship, it's time, it's investment, it's talent, it's all those things. So, so, so here we see. Okay, um, it's not that I go, well, here, God, you keep this, I'll hang on to this. No, it's God saying the wealth is not yours to begin with. That's what He just said. Hold on a second, you don't own it. Your house, yeah, you might have worked hard, you might might try to earn it, but ultimately, it's God's. It's not yours. Or he says that, I I mean, this is, now the Christian gets this. The Christian goes, okay, I'm thinking back to Haggai where God speaks to the prophet and he says, hey, the gold is mine, the silver is mine. It's all God's, right? Psalm 104, the earth is filled with God's possessions. It's all his. So what does this mean? He's ultimately the owner, we're ultimately the steward. How does that change how you view and see all that you have and all that you are? It's not yours. You're just a steward like the manager and the rich man. Amazing that he lets broken, ridiculous people steward what is his. Right? (laughs) Amazing that he lets us participate in the privilege of that. That he gives us deep joy in taking what is already his and saying, here, I've entrusted this to you, steward it for me. So, here's why. The sons of this age, unbelievers, they just chase everything here because they think it's God. Here's why. Because you don't realize that all that you have is not yours. And this is why the Christian a light gets switched and they're freed from the enslavement of wealth and they realize all that I have is not mine anyways, so I'm free to steward, free to give, free to love, free to use for the kingdom of God. Knowing that God says in Psalm 50, man, I got thousands of cattle on any hill. I can dispose any, any one of them anytime I want. I'm not lacking. He's not lacking in wealth. <laughs> And I love hearing the stories over and over. Those of you who trusted God, leaned into God, and he provided, he continues to provide. I always tell people, my first year of marriage, my wife got sick, she lost her job that we were banking on. I was making like $26,000 a year in ministry, and I don't know how we paid rent. And I don't know how, how we made it, but I will tell you that praise God in his grace, my parents had taught me, you steward what is God's first, and then later you hang on to stuff. So no matter how deep and difficult the circumstances were, it was, hey, let's give, let's give, let's give. Let's trust God, it's all his anyways. And it frees you. It liberates you from the bondage of wealth, from the bondage of needing. Now, here's the point. The point in all this is that we're all stewards. And you're either a heaven-minded steward or you're a here and now steward. And so, so in the end, here's what this is saying, that all that you have, all that's been given to you is by God, ultimately for God. So all that you have is to make much of God, celebrate God, and celebrate others leading them to him. So, so for some of us, right, he, he's... Well, all of us sitting here, right, he's given us this body. Why? Not to make much of me, but to steward it, right? So that people might see the image of God more fully. Right, God's given me a wife, a beautiful wife who God somehow blinded her eyes for like four years so she wouldn't see me until we entered covenant. And then we entered covenant, right? But man, this woman who God has entrusted to me, I'm called to love her, serve her. He says, wash her with the word. He's entrusted me with a spouse. Right, kids, right? He's given me a son, right? Not just so he mows the lawn, but he will mow the lawn, right? <laughs> Not just so he'll do that, though, so that I would teach him and disciple him and impart to him the wonderful teachings of Jesus, how he's beautiful, how he's good. And then, Jackson, I want you to teach other people how God is good, how he is gracious, how he is kind, how our lives work best when we make much of him. Um, um, he's, he's given me two cars, to. Steward. He's given me a house to steward. He's given me this church to steward, to love, lead, shepherd, care for. So the question always for us is: okay, God, you've given me XYZ for your situation in your family. You've called me to steward these things. And how are we doing? With the grace of God, how are we doing in stewarding these things? God's going, I'm gonna entrust you with this. Isn't that a privilege? Man, the family, the wife, the husband, the kids, it's a privilege, hey, I'm giving them to you to steward. We know, as Christians, our kids are not ours, they're God's. Our wife, ultimately, is God's, not ours. So it frees us to love, serve, care for, in ways that supersede the world's view, which is make much of me, and when you don't, I break the contract. We say, well, no, we're in covenant, so we'll keep serving, loving, abiding, because I know there's nothing in it for me, ultimately because it's ultimately your God's, but he's called me to steward you and love you and care for you. And according to the scriptures, (laughs) there's gonna be a day where this entire disguise fades at the beauty of God's coming and we're all gonna be laid naked going, wow, I'm giving an account for all he's given me and how I've entrusted and stewarded it. And that's what Jesus is saying. How are you not operating like that when the world operates that way and they don't even have an understanding of that day of reckoning? Jesus boils it down to this last verse, verse 13. He boils the whole thing down to one issue, verse 13. No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Jesus boils it down, right? It's an issue of worship, it's a worship issue. Now, Jesus, in case you were wondering, right, Jesus is not a God that says, okay, cool, um, pray a prayer, say something, and then, you know, just say you're going to submit your life to me, and then, you know, escape hell and live like hell. Like, that's just not in the Bible. The Bible says, no, you come after me, you die to your wants, you die to yourself, you live for me, I have allegiance, I have all of your rights, right, all of it is bound up in Jesus. He calls the shots, he's the master, I'm a slave to him, I'm a slave to righteousness, the Bible calls it. But I... I like that because he's a good gracious master who's after my joy and good he's not trying to take from me he's trying to give generously to me where the world that we're a slave to to only wants to take from us it does not want to give to us and do not buy that lie friend and so here it's a worship issue and we worship god the real god or we worship a false god and the real God's the only place we should be driving our affections. So if in the end Jesus says your God is wealth, when it fails, you'll go off the rails and you'll go south. Yet if you are all your affections are bound up in God, the triune God, the maker of all things, when I don't fail you, because I never fail you, you remain stable and you don't go south. You remain constant. You're a refuge. You have firm places to put your feet, the Bible says. Right, Psalm 1, you're like a tree that when the storms come, you're rooted. You're secure. Because you're being fed from something otherworldly. You're not being fed from the world's system. And this is why when we begin to pursue life, fulfillment, joy, worship, anything, in wealth or not God, there's inescapable conflict in your life. I say this a lot. I know I keep saying it, but every time I sit down with someone, then there's conflict. The issue is God was not God. So your spouse became ultimate, your kids became ultimate, your wealth became ultimate, your job became ultimate. So you chased in those things, searching and looking for fulfillment, joy, purpose, meaning, forgetting that when it fails you, which it did, you go south, you're off the rails. Instead of putting your hope, affections in God who does not fail you, he's ultimately secure, particularly in the life to come, right? He frees you from the enslavement to the financial slavery that exists in the worlds of chasing the mythical creature of wealth and fulfillment and achievement and fame and all of those things. He liberates you to enjoy all that he gives and says, just be a steward of what I've entrusted to you. And don't worry, you got triple infinite coming. <laughs> You're gonna be good forever. Brothers and sisters, um, I was thinking about this, this idea um, that we don't get to retire you know as Christians we get to die. And you got eternity to rest. You got eternity to kick back and enjoy the lawn. And it seriously, and enjoy the riches of heaven and enjoy God and enjoy good food and enjoy good drink and enjoy perfect, unbridled, unhindered fellowship. You've got eternity for that. That's why I think... It was C.S. Lewis who said, um, when I've learned to love God better than every other earthly dearest, I love all my earthly dearest much better than I do now. Like when I've learned to love God and put my affections there and my attention there, everybody else is happy. (laughs) So in your marriage, right, the best thing you can do for your spouse is not just do what they want, it's to love Jesus. So that they become happy under that. It's the best thing we can do as a boss. It's the best thing we can do as a parent. Now, I'm not saying, and the Bible will never say, that you can't enjoy richly the things God gives you. God is generous. God is kind. God richly provides. So money isn't bad. Money isn't intrinsically evil. But you and I are intrinsically evil. That's the issue, right? So you and I are going to pervert it and screw it up, every good gift God gives, and we're going to make it an idol and not a tool, And so God says, money can be a great thing, but when you make that God, it leads to conflict, anger, disappointment, emptiness. So I want to ask us just three questions a lot of the texts as we close this out. I want you to think about these, pray about these, discuss these with your family. Number one, uh, who do you compare yourself to? Remember, we keep seeing, back to the parable of the rich fool, um, when you're not content, you covet. And it will reveal a lot about what you believe about Wealth. So maybe just say, and maybe ask yourselves, man, who are the people, if any, that I compare myself to? Well, if I had the job they had, if I had the status of living they had, if I had the car that they drove it, well, you're really worshiping wealth over God, and you're not satisfied. Number two, um, money really helps reveal our heart. That's really the whole reason Jesus goes after this. <laughs> Again, it's not because he needs your money, it's because he wants your heart. And none of us like that. We all want to do good things for God. I mean, I want to do and not do, and then he goes after your heart, and you go, no, don't do that. No Jesus, right? Now he says, I want to go after your heart. And, and Tim Keller, this guy in the city who's just a brain, he uh, discusses like deep and surface idols. So what he does is he says, hey, there's idols that we have, but there are things underneath that are causing that. So here's what you might need to ask yourself. What are you desiring? What are you so wanting in your life that is causing a love for wealth? So are you desperate for comfort? And that's why you're trying to pursue at any means possible wealth? Are you desperate for fame? Prestige, success. Is that why you're chasing the mythical creature that is wealth? What is it that you're going after? As your real God comfort, you know, maybe you think money's gonna buy you ease. And I know anyone that's lived long enough can tell you that's a lie. And according to Jesus, he says, pick up your cross and follow me. Where there's greater joy and lasting treasure. Doesn't matter what you have, there's still pain. Number three, last one, um, if Jesus sat down with your family today, and he went over your budget, your family budget, what would he say should be adjusted? <laughs> Might be a long dinner, right? What, where would he look and say, hey, man, guys, your eyes are a little bit off here. Your eyes are a little bit off here. It's gonna look different for all of us. And being super honest, Chris and I do this monthly we get together to say how are we spending our money where are we investing in other missionaries and other church planners giving to church at Bergen what needs to change what needs to be redirected how do we need to be rightly more faithful in stewarding what God has given to us and it's a conversation and there's adjustments so what would that look like for you there are a few things we will do that will more clearly display what we worship than what we do with our wealth And that's challenging, right? And I'm gonna end with this, and I'm gonna keep saying this, because within all of this, we have to be so careful of silliness, okay? Because there's two ramps that people usually go on when they hear a sermon like this. Instead of asking for, you know, uh, God to work in wisdom, we think that the the issue is just, you know, telling us to fall to one extreme. So you have prosperity teaching, which is, hey, if you love God, man, you're gonna be really wealthy and healthy and rich, That's going to be demonstrative in your life. Well, that's not a theology to love God. It's to get your real God by abusing and using God. Right? Well, then you have the other side, right? This this poverty gospel, this poverty theology says, man, no, those who lack more are closer to God. If you sell all your stuff, man, then you're more righteous than the next person. No, that's just self-righteousness trying to earn God. The, the good news of the scriptures is, hey, everybody is destitute, poor, blind, naked, outside of the rescuing nature of Jesus. So, no matter your sacrifice or your wealth, none of that can earn you God. That's the good news. man. No matter where you land on the spectrum, Jesus alone makes you rich, Jesus alone reconciles you to God, Jesus alone makes you new. He's it. Nothing else. Nothing that you get rid of, nothing that you accumulate. None of that shows for God, hey, I earned it, hey, I can barter, hey, I've won. None of that. Jesus is your champion. At the end of all things, it stands before you and says, I'm in your place, in your stead, for your debt, accruing wrath, all of that for you. So now I save you from this twin enemy of poverty. Poverty, prosperity, and he lets you be a faithful steward where you don't ask for wealth, you start asking for wisdom in life. So so the scriptures constantly say, God, give me wisdom. God, search my heart, God. So listen, we're not going to walk around and go, oh, you do, oh, you, no. That's silliness. I've seen, I've been there. It's God, search my heart. God, as a family, what are we doing? Where do we need to be adjusted? Where do we need to more rightly see what you've given us to be good stewards? let's end with Jesus why is Jesus better God than money well because in money you look for security you look for life you look for hope you look for comfort Jesus alone gives you security, hope, comfort fullness of life Jesus isn't greedy he's generous Jesus doesn't take he gives himself Jesus is a much better God he pays your debt to God he frees you from the financial slavery that you're incurring every single day to God that you cannot pay on your own and says I'll buy you I'll purchase you so that you get the one who owns it all, which is himself. I was thinking of a verse we're gonna sing. We're gonna sing in just a few minutes because we love declaring and saying to God the things that he has tilled in our hearts. And there's a verse in Be Thou My Vision. I thought about it this week and it just says this and I feel like it sums up everything Jesus is saying. Riches I heed not, nor man's empty praise. Thou my inheritance now and always. Thou and thou only first in my heart. High King of heaven, my treasure, thou art. We're gonna take the Lord's Supper. We do this every week. We come to the table. And what you're saying as a Christian, non-Christians, we ask you not to come because you can't participate in something that you do not know and you do not recall and you do not remember. For those of us that are Christians, we come to the table after we confess sins and examine our hearts saying... Father, remind me. Remind me of my treasure. It's bound up in the broken body and shed blood of Jesus. When you come to the table, you're saying, renew me, reform me, remake me, in the sense of recalibrate me. Remind me of what's at stake. Remind me who my king is. Remind me who my treasure is. Remind me who is all that I need for the day ahead tomorrow. We're declaring with ourselves. We're declaring with our lips. We're declaring with communion. God, would you help me? Would you find grace at the table this morning? Grace to empower you, grace to enable you to live a life faithfully as God's steward. This does not give you righteousness. This does not forgive sin. Jesus alone does that, but he's given us a visible gospel in the Lord's Supper where there is means of grace that we receive from him that gives us what we need for tomorrow. Let's ask for help. God, you are a good, gracious God. We need you. We need help. We need realignment, recalibration. We need to see the world through the lens that you see the world. God, show us our riches. Show us our adoption. Show us how we've been made new. Free us from the enslavement of wealth and help us to be faithful stewards. God, help us to have honest conversations that need to be had, to confess where we need to confess, to repent where we need to repent. And God, thank you that we do not have to any longer chase Status and identity and security and comfort and need because you've bound it all up in the purchasing work of Jesus. Help us to be satisfied there and to stay there and to keep drinking from there. In Jesus' name, amen.